Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the good news, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13. uh, And let's hear this good word of God together. Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, Barely truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Will you lay down your life for me? I think Jesus either knew fully or certainly had an inkling that as much as Peter wanted to lay down his life for him, he simply wasn't capable of it. It wasn't in his character and hadn't been formed in him. He knew that he loved him. They'd been friends. They'd been the closest of friends. This is Peter, the founder of the church. This is the bishop of the first church. This is Peter, the one who walks on water. The one who tries to defend him in the garden. Will you lay down your life for me? Jesus asked him. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And we are completing our sermon series called Unoffendable. Uh, In some ways, the first three weeks are the easiest. And now we come to the hard part. And so you're like, oh boy, I didn't really enjoy the first three. So um, here we are at week four. We're going to talk about betrayal. There's, There's something different about betrayal. It hits closer to home. Um, If you were to look up betrayal in the dictionary, it would say to expose uh, one's country or one's group or another person to danger, to real danger by treacherously giving information to an enemy. You know, the saddest thing about betrayal is it never comes from your enemies. It always comes from someone close to home. So over the last three weeks, we we basically, as a review, um, we talked about these things. Week one. To be offended is to judge another's action as a moral false step. And of course, this is problematic because as soon as we judge another's action, Jesus says that we're in deep weeds. We're in big trouble when we do that because that's not our place. That's the Lord's place. And this judge word in the Greek is not to discern or to be able to think rightly about something. This judge is really the Greek word that we would use for condemn. Uh, To condemn others is to begin to condemn ourselves, and that's what we learn in week one. So uh, I wanted you to hear it in a different translation. I think Eugene Peterson's The Message is very helpful. He writes it like this. Uh, This is from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Jesus says, don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. Isn't that true? It's that critical spirit. If you're following along in your sermon notes, that's your blank there. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. And, and Jesus goes on to say, he says, it's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? This is Jesus' teaching. It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. So Jesus is, is trying to teach us um, that you know, it's, it's not about playing this game as if pretending that we're better than someone else. 
right? Preparing that you can pay attention to the sermon when really you're just worried about your car, right? We don't do that, <laughs> right? We, we just own it. So that was week one. Week two is this. That part of what makes us angry is that we're simply living beyond the limits that God has placed on us. That we are people, we're mortals. We need rest. We need sleep. We need time to work and then time to rest. And so anger and rest are always at odds. Will you say that with me? Anger and rest are always at odds. You can't have both. You can't have both. And a lot of the times that we're frustrated and and struggling is simply because we're tired. And that was um, uh, week two when we talked about anxious toil and what that looks like. And then last week at week three, uh, when it comes to injustice, we need to act, uh, not anger. We need action, not anger. We act in love, which is a gutsy decision to seek the best for others. Injustice is real, and we do need action. But anything we can do with anger, we can do better without it. So we act in love, this decision to seek the best for others. And that's true for every person on the planet. So let's look at what betrayal is not. What is not. So some of you feel betrayed. Many of us feel betrayed about this, that, or the other. uh, But we simply don't think about it uh, in ways that are helpful. So Jesus tells a story. Uh, in Matthew, about the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew, they use the words kingdom of heaven because they didn't want to use the word God. And so they use, they just simply, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is the same. But because it's a heavy Jewish context, uh, it would be not appropriate to use the word God. So they simply say kingdom of heaven. So here, here's the thing about the kingdom of heaven. It is just, but not fair. Will you say that with me? It is just, but not fair. Now, Jesus is going to explain this in this story. He says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. So what did they agree on? They show up at dawn, and then they are going to work for the usual daily wage. Now, in places like Houston, uh, or places uh, where they do a lot of day laborers, this happens today. You can drive up, and if you need workers, they're there to work, and they work for the day, and you pay them at the end of the day. You agree on the wage, and you go. Uh, Those of you who've lived in big cities, you you know how this works. So this is basically what's going on. So the landowner goes back at 9 o'clock in the morning. So about three hours of work has probably already been done. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go to the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is what? Right. Do you notice the difference? So at dawn, when he's talking to the day laborers, he says, I'm going to agree with you on this wage. But then when he comes back at nine and the other people have already been in the field for a few hours, he says, I'm going to pay you what is, say it with me, right. So they just agree to that and they go on. So they went. Now he goes back then uh, and at about noon and he goes back about three o'clock and he does the same. He keeps picking them up because he needs more laborers, need more laborers. And then finally, the story ends like this. He says, and about five o'clock, the landowner goes out and he finds others standing around. He goes, and so now, now if you were to go uh, to the day laborer camp and you're looking around, you're like, hmm, why are they standing there? Can they work? Are they good workers? Why aren't they working? And so he asked them, he says, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And the landowner says to them, then you also go to the vineyard. You see, what he finds is that the landowner finds that the workers in that pool at that time, they had no work, right? It wasn't that they weren't willing to work. It's simply that no one had hired them yet. And so he's, he's doing this discernment piece. He's not condemning them. He's simply discerning. He's judging the situation, which is different than condemning them as, oh, those lazy people, it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. They, they haven't worked all day. You know, those so-and-sos, they should have been in the field. No. He looks at them and says, how come you're not working? 
We didn't have any work today. Nobody hired us. Okay, well, then you go on too. So then the story, Jesus concludes the story like this. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay. And so he started with those that came in at 5 o'clock, the last, and then going to the first. So when those who were hired at about 5 o'clock came, each of them received what? The usual daily wage. Now, if you were a person in first century Judaism, this blew your mind. Because you're, what you're telling me is somebody who worked from 5 to 6 o'clock, 5 to 7 o'clock, got the entire day's wage. And that's how the story starts. I mean, these folks were elated, right? I mean, they were simply at the end of the day, 5 o'clock, Jesus goes, he says, come work, he does. And this was an extravagant move of generosity. And they're like, wow, this is so great. So that's, he did that, and then he started moving backwards. Now, when the first came, right, as he went through this, they thought, right, that they would receive what? More. Now, that's the problem. Greed will get you every time. But each of them also received what? The usual daily wage. Now, so you, so you understand this. So the people that worked at five got the usual daily wage. Three o'clock people got the same. Folks at noon got the same. Folks at 9 a.m. got the same. The people who had worked at dawn got the same. And they all got the amount that was promised to the folks at dawn. And when the folks at dawn who had worked all day, when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. They weren't happy that they got work. They weren't happy that they were paid exactly what they were promised. So they said this to the, to the landowner. These last, the folks at 5 o'clock, they only worked one hour. And you have made them what? Ah, yeah. Equality is great if you're on the generosity side, but there's just something in us, isn't there? That even though they had said, will you work for this and get paid that? And we said yes, and we were grateful for it. Only a few hours later, now we're mad about it. That's just human nature. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But the landowner replied to one of them. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Is he doing them wrong? Did he do what he said he was going to do? Yes, all along. Did you not agree with me for the usually daily wage? Yes, you did. Did we not talk about this? Did we not, in essence, sign a contract? Will you work today from dawn until dusk for this wage? You said, yes, I paid you that. Now, why are you mad at me? All right? And, and, and then he says this. Look, in essence, you ungrateful one. Take what belongs to you. I paid you. I haven't shorted you anything. And go. Get out of my sight. Because I did good to you, and all you can do is complain about me. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or, Jesus says, are you envious because I am Say it with me, generous. Now that's a good question. What I find is that when someone is generous with me, I'm elated. But if I work the same as someone else and someone's generous with the other, if I'm not careful, my heart can become hardened both against their generosity and against the person who received it. This is really important for the church to understand. Because our job, what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's just. Everything that God says comes true. The promises of God are true and infallible. But the good news is every once in a while, 
God will just bless the socks off of some people. And we're supposed to be happy for them. And it might be you. The problem is, we tend to really uh, love and take care of people who have a little less than we do. We really like that. Don't you feel good when you like give your kids hand-me-downs to another family that, that needs some clothes? Don't you feel awesome about that? You feel good about that. But you don't necessarily feel so great about your neighbor who makes about $80,000 more than you do uh, when they went out shopping and they come home with brand new clothes. You're like, good for you. It's a little harder, isn't it? See, that's just human nature, that Jesus knows this about us, that, that we really like to have a little more power than the next guy. We don't want to be equal. We really want to be a little better than. And as Christians, friends, you just need to understand, it's not on the table. We're never called to be better than. We're actually called to be the servant of all. And so at the end of the story, Jesus says, the last shall be first, and the first will be last. And here's the great news, friends. When we actually allow the love of God to come inside of us, something wonderful happens. Brant Hansen, who wrote the book Unoffendable, says it like this. He says, when I'm at my best, you can't offend me. You can punch me, you can cuss me, uh, you can do all sorts of things, but you can't offend me because my life is no longer my own. My life belongs to God. So when I'm at my best, you can't offend me. And if you're a, a Twitter person, we invite you to tweet that out. When we're at our best, you can't offend us. You, you just simply can't. Because we're here to serve. We're here to help. And if you have more than me, or if somebody's being generous with you, good on you. That's awesome. Because that, that's good for the world. And we don't need to be afraid that somehow we're missing out or we have less than someone else. You see, God's kingdom is just. But it's not fair. Thank God. Right? We don't get what we deserve, and we need to be thankful about that. Because what we want is grace. We want forgiveness, and we want to extend that to other people. So if that's not betrayal, right? I mean, when you do your work, and you get paid for what you're supposed to do, and somebody else gets a raise or somebody else gets a promotion, that's not betrayal. That's life. Right? That's not betrayal. What does betrayal actually look like? Well, unfortunately, Jesus knows all about that. Betrayal looks like this. According to the Gospel of Luke, while he was still speaking, Jesus, suddenly a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man, the name that he used for himself? You see, betrayal comes from those closest to us. That's, that's the thing about a kiss, isn't it? That's what makes it so painful. That a kiss is something that was created for good. It was, it was to show intimacy to show one that, that's to love you and to care for you. And Judas used it for harm. And that's why betrayal is so brutal. When those closest to us turn on us and bring us harm and bring us into danger. And so, um, if you didn't just sort of already know that, um, when you look at Jesus' life, I want you to look at his relationship with Judas. And so they're at the table on the last night of Jesus' life, uh, a, a meal that we recount every time that we gather. And one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, John, it's in the Gospel of John, he writes us about himself, he was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter therefore motioned for him to ask Jesus to whom he was speaking about which one was going to betray him. And so while reclining next to Jesus, John asked Jesus, he goes, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Well, Who's that going to be? 
well, it's going to be Judas. But I want you to just look at the meal. I mean, we, we share it here in a very you know, sanitized kind of form. Uh, but when Jesus is at this meal, Jesus is going to be uh, in the middle seat on the left. And he's going to have John on his right. And John's going to lean back on his chest and go, hey, Jesus, who's going to betray you? And Jesus says, it's the one with whom my hand's going to be in, uh, you know, in the dip with. So who's that going to be? Where would that person have to be? I want to show you a seating chart. Uh, Jesus is going to be in the number one spot. John's going to be in number two. It's Judas that's going to be in the other place of honor. Seats one, two, and three are the places of honor. All the other disciples, Peter and James and Matthew and all the rest, they're all in these other spots. Um, but John and Judas are the two closest to Jesus at this meal. And so the, the scripture continues and it says, So when he had dipped the piece of bread, Jesus, you know, he's laying down and Judas is laying right next to him. And he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, Do quickly what you're going to do. And it shows us the peace about betrayal. What does it do? It isolates us. It isolates Judas from the rest of the community and the rest of, of, of the disciples, and he has to leave. He disappears because he's betraying the Lord. Will you say this with me? Betrayal isolates, and that's part of what makes it so horrible, so brutal. Whether you're the betrayor or whether you're the one being betrayed, the action's the same. The result is the same. It isolates you from community, which is the place where we gain strength and joy and love and peace and learn how to do life together. So that's on Judah's side. But let's look at what happens to Jesus on his side. It isolates him too. Then he handed him over to be crucified, talking about Pilate. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others on either side with Jesus between them. How did Jesus carry the cross? By himself, alone. No disciples around. John goes on to, to make it very clear about who was uh, at the cross. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mom, his, his aunt, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. If you were to go on just a little bit in chapter 19, you'll also see that Jesus has an encounter with John and Mary. John is also there because he asked John to take care of his mom from the cross. Now, let's go back to the chart, for example. Who's not there? Well, uh, not 3, 6, 5, 4, 7, 8, or 9, or 10, 11, or 12. None of them are there. They're all gone. Betrayal isolates. There's nobody at the cross except John. Jesus and John, that's it. All of these folks gone, nowhere to be found. That's what betrayal looks like. You see, God doesn't love all the things we do. He loves us in spite of the things we do. And for that reason, we're really glad he's generous. And we don't judge the others that he's generous with because we're counting on that generosity coming our way when we need it as well. So what does that grace look like? Well, I want you to think about this. My hunch is that, you know, certainly if you're my age, uh, you've been betrayed by now. It just happens in life. Someone's betrayed you. Um, and it's very painful. Uh, painful enough that I'm not giving you any stories about betrayal from my own personal life or anyone else's that I know. And it's not appropriate. But you know it in your own life. So look at this. Look, look what grace looks like. Jesus is on the cross. That's why we keep it front and center here. There's, there'd be two other crosses if we were to you know, replicate it uh, exactly. 
And Jesus looks to, to, to one of the thieves. They've been um, you know, in this diatribe back and forth about Jesus. And Jesus looks at one of them and he says this, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He looks at him and he says, Truly I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Anybody here tell me a good reason why Jesus should save that guy? Any good accolades on this man whatsoever? He did nothing. Nothing good that we know of. All we know is he was a bad enough criminal that he would be publicly executed. That's all we know. Nothing good at all that we know of. That's what grace looks like. This is what Jesus does from the cross. That's the character of God. So now let's flash forward. That's the cross. And now Jesus is raised. And the disciples who were not at the cross, not at the tomb, not around, not being helpful, betrayed the Lord, they've gone back to fishing what they know. So in the Gospel of John, uh, this story is told about Jesus. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. But the disciples out in the boat didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered to Jesus, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they did. They cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. Imagine this. And when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. And Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. There were 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, before we go any further in the story, when's the last time we saw Jesus and the disciples together? It's been a while. Now, let me ask you, if, what would you do when you bump into somebody who has absolutely betrayed you sold you out, and not been there for you at your most desperate moment. What do you do for them? What do you do when you see them in the hall? Do you catch eyes with them? Do you look down? Do you try to move to another room? What do you do to people who betrayed you? What does Jesus do? He does three things. The first is this. He goes, hey guys, how's the fishing going? Right? They, they're out there. They don't necessarily want to talk to Jesus because they're not in right relationship with them. They're broken. He says, hey, how's it going? And they, they, and they know they don't have any fish. And then he helps them. He says, try it on the other side. And they do, and they catch 153 fish. That's a lot of fish in a small boat. And they bring it to shore. And then what does he do? Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, I know this may seem really silly to you, but the answer to what do you do to someone who betrays you, the answer is fix them breakfast. That's the real answer. You go, hey, how are you doing? How can I help you? Want something to eat? That's what Jesus does to the very people who were not there for him. They had lived with him for three years. They had been to places like Capernaum. They had walked the Sea of Galilee. They had heard him teach. They had been to Jerusalem. They did all these things with him, and they completely sold him out and were not there for him. And when, when it finally, when push comes to shove and they see each other face to face, Jesus cooks them breakfast. So, I know this is crazy, out-of-the-box thinking, but I want you to think about the person that has betrayed you. It's really just 
that you cannot stand them. I mean, it's just, they've not done right by you. And, and there's no denying it. There's no question about whether or not they betrayed you. They did. You know it. They know it. Everybody knows it. What if after service or at their prayer time, you ask God to give you the courage to invite them to breakfast and you pay or you cook it because that's who Jesus is and his character lives in you. So your action step is simply the words of Jesus. Bless those who persecute you. Will you say that with me? Bless those who persecute you. For real. For real. Again, this isn't about who's right, who's wrong. This is about becoming like Jesus.